and welcome to this week's edition of the Fromer Travel Show. So nice to have you along for the ride and what a ride it's going to be. I'm going to get right into the conversation because my first guest has an absolutely fascinating book out. It's called The Hero's Way, Walking with Garibaldi from Rome to Ravenna. And on the line, I have the author, Tim Parks. Hey, Tim, welcome to the Frommer Travel Show. Hi, Pauline. Good, good to be here. I got to tell you, Garibaldi is part of my life in a very strange way. Every morning, I walk my dog in Washington Square Park here in New York City, and I pass the most wonderful statue of Garibaldi. And in recent months, you know, people have been kind of jumping out of their skins here in New York because of the pandemic, because of being locked down and not being able to hang out. And Washington Square Park has become kind of a party place. And they keep writing graffiti <laughs> on the side of the statue. And recently it was another white guy. And I kind of wished that the person who wrote that could have read your book, because I think the rebel who put that piece of graffiti up would probably be a big fan of Garibaldi if he knew what that white guy had done. Maybe I'm being uh, uh, too optimistic, but can you tell a little bit about the history of Garibaldi before we get into what it took to follow in his footsteps across Italy? Okay, so Garibaldi is born in the early 19th century in Nice, or Nizza as the Italians call it, which at that time was in Piemonte, not in France. Hmm. His father was a sea captain. He himself went to sea. Um, he got involved with various liberal revolutions. He decided in his 20s to dedicate his life to, to liberating peoples who were subjected to um, foreign government and so on. Right. He right. was condemned to death in Piemonte for his, his part in a, in a revolution, a liberal revolution. He spent many years in South America where he's extremely famous in, in Brazil and Uruguay, again fighting for smaller free states against larger states. He came back to Italy in 1848 when there were revolutions in Italy then. And he was involved in the revolution in Rome in 1849, which is when, um, after the French finally took back Rome from the Italian revolutionaries, Garibaldi led a few thousand men on a 600 kilometer, that's about 300 mile walk, uh, to try to get to Venice where there was another republic. But if I could speak to your man who put up the graffiti. Yeah, please do. Please do. Garibaldi came to America after that, after that period in, in 1849, when he managed to escape from the, the Austrians who were very eager to, um, to get rid of him. He escaped. He went to the USA. He worked in a, in a candle factory in, on Staten huh. Island uh, for some time before again managing to become a ship's captain. Later, after his uh, huge military successes in the revolutions in 1860 in Italy, he was, he was invited to take part in the American Civil War before it was, just as it was starting. Which and side? It on, 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 the, uh, on, on the Union side, not the South. Oh, good, good. Yeah. And he said he would take part huh. if they could guarantee that the real reason for the war was... Uh, to free slaves. 
And when uh, that was not guaranteed at the time, because at the beginning that was not stated as as the the main cause of the war, Garibaldi refused to go. He said he would only fight if it was a question of of fighting to free slaves. And in fact, when he rode into Rome in in 1849, he had beside him his... um, his friend uh, Aguayero, who was a, 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 a black man from Uruguay who had been a slave uh, and who had been freed in one of these revolutions. So to put up that kind of graffito on a, on a, on a statue of Garibaldi is just another uh, amazing expression of ignorance. Right? Yeah, yeah. And what is so exciting about your book is we have so few heroes nowadays. And reading your book, I got so excited about the smarts and ethics and humility of Garibaldi. He seems a true hero. And to to read a book that, that makes that clear is so different. You know, we're living in the age of the anti-hero right now. Uh, and to, to hear about a man who set out to do something really, really difficult and succeeded is heartening in a way. And it was something that, that I think was positive. Absolutely. What can I say? There's a a British historian, A.J.P. Taylor, who was who was quite a cynical man in many ways, but he said um, Garibaldi is the one entirely positive character in in modern history. So so there you are. One comes to Garibaldi with a, with a sense of amazement, wondering, you know, how, how can I speak ill of him, as as it were. Um, Garibaldi, Garibaldi clearly believed totally in in taking ethical positions, and at the same time, he was absolutely determined that he should live free and that other people should live free. And he and he he, he behaved uh, in in a manner in line with that. He did pretty much uh, everything he could to combat illiberal governments and so on and so forth. To yeah. the, he was also a very brilliant soldier, a very brilliant, brilliant at guerrilla warfare. Um, but but you never hear of of of, um, of, of any acts of terrorism. Uh, you right. never hear of any hostages being being killed or or matters of that kind. One of the things in Italy today is a, a kind of embarrassment around Garibaldi because he was absolutely central to the unification of Italy. But at the same time. If we admire him, he kind of shames us, you know, so mm. that if you want to have a cynical attitude about the world and feel that everything has been wrapped up and that you can't do anything about it, Garibaldi is a kind of problem because he says, well, you know, maybe maybe you can do something about it. Maybe we can get yeah. going and do stuff. Well, one of the most fascinating parts of your book to me was you're in a small town and you're doing this walk, trying to follow in the footsteps of Garibaldi, and we will get back to what that involved. But you overhear that you tell somebody about your project, walking in the footsteps of Garibaldi, and a man very loudly at a table, he's playing, I think, cards with his friends, starts spouting conspiracy theories that Garibaldi was only in it for the money, and he didn't actually do this, and it was an international Jewish intrigue. And it, it kind of breaks your heart that 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 kind of thing is out there because, as you say, 
Why would anybody want to change history in this way? What what, wow. what does it help? Well, you know, I've, um, Pauline, I've lived in Italy forty years, and Italy's <laughs> Italy's quite a complicated place. Sure. Uh, after unification, the uh, the northern Italians who who took over the central government, although of course the south was always represented in parliament, and often rep- and, and often the prime ministers were were from the south. But the policies followed out after unification were quite drastic um, for the economy of the South, particularly mm. towards the end of the, the 19th century. And the South today is very much behind the North. Right. And so, so people tend to uh, try and blame everything that, that's going on in the South, all the difficulties it has, on the unification process and hence on, on Garibaldi. There's really, I mean, there's really a, a sort of little movement, a little counter-historical counter movement that publishes books on this. And then there are other people who publishes, publish books just showing how, how crazy the, the position is. But, right. you, you know, you can, never, you can never expect everybody to agree on everything. So, of course. Of you know, course. it's part yes. of the course. Yeah, yeah. Um, so back to your walk. So you made the decision to try and follow in Garibaldi's footsteps from the moment when he had to leave Rome because he was so outnumbered. And he said, anybody who wants to follow me, we will keep fighting for liberty elsewhere in the country. I can't promise that I will feed you well. I can't, or even at all. I can't promise you'll have a great place to sleep at night, but you'll be fighting for a good cause. And and so you decided to follow the path he took going around with this ragtag army of whoever would follow him. But that was very, very difficult to do, to, to follow that path. Can you give us some of the reasons why it was such a challenge for you uh, to do that? Yeah, let me say, I should say why I decided to do this nutty thing um, sure. from the beginning. I mean, I... Ever since I've been in Italy, I've always been fascinated by the process of Italian unification and always fascinated by Garibaldi. And I read frequently about this famous retreat, they call it, from Rome, where he leaves Rome in the middle of the night to escape the French with a bunch of volunteers, 4,000 men, 800 cavalry, and, and tries to get them to Venice. Now, anybody who knows Italy knows that's about a 200-mile trip, even if you went straight. And he was pursued by a French army, a Spanish army, and four Austrian armies zigzagging all around the country. Now, it's wonderful country. I found a diary that, that's been out of print for about 100 years, written hmm. by the guy who was Garibaldi's main assistant, who was actually a German Gustav Hofstetter. It's a wonderful diary, incredibly detailed, gives all the places they went, all the techniques they used to avoid uh, the the armies that were chasing them. Many, many anecdotes of bizarre stuff that happened on the way, all kinds of of amusing and and also uh, unhappy things. And I just thought, what a wonderful way to spend the summer. We we could do this. (laughs) Right, Uh, right. so, so we decided to do it. And actually, that then brought up a whole new bunch of issues because when people go walking today, even when they go on these big pilgrim walks, they're walking on, on a path where, that they know is there. 
And they're very rarely walking in and out of busy towns. Whereas we had to start our walk by walking out of Rome. Uh, <laughs> when Garibaldi walked out of Rome, the population was about 300,000. Now, you know, it's getting on for 4 million. So it's it's quite a different different thing. So the whole the whole thing was totally fascinating and it and it led to a lot of reflections that I hadn't imagined about the way we travel today and sure. the way we experience the world and landscape today and also the change from the center of the town through its many suburbs and then its its unhappier maybe uh, suburbs and then the sort of industrialized countryside and then and then the country countryside and then the abandoned villages because although Rome at the time was much, much smaller than it is today, many of the villages would have had four or five times the population then that they had now. So, so it, it was a rather extraordinary way of, as it were, getting close to history but by simply physically exposing yourself to it. Right, right. Uh, and, but you couldn't know, uh, what's the word? You couldn't know definitively that you were in the same, going on the same paths that the soldiers were, because even though Hofstetter wrote about it, other people who wrote about it said, no, that guy was German. He had no idea where he was. He was <laughs> he would write that he was in one place, but he often was somewhere else. And so some of the things you had to guess at, right? Well, yeah, we know, we know what, we know what, what towns they were in. Sometimes, sometimes Hofstetter, gets things wrong, partly because Garibaldi almost always walked at night. This all took place in July, and, and we also did it in July, and the temperatures in July were in the mid-30s. That is, the, in the USA, we're talking about temperatures around 100 degrees. Oof. So we, we would start walking just before dawn and hopefully finish our walks at lunchtime, if we could. Right. Uh, but but one of the things was Garibaldi had 4,000 men and 800 horses, and he was constantly sending his horses, splitting them up into groups of 50 and sending them out in all different directions so that the Austrians and French would imagine that he was going in different ways from the way he was. So even when you're not quite walking where he was, you can pretty be, be pretty sure you're walking in the zone. In the in same the zone, vicinity. Also, right, right. There are there are other diaries. There are two other diaries, and another couple of people in the nineteenth century tried to reconstruct uh, the war. And there are a lot of local archives, which, in this wonderful day and age, are available uh, online. So, you know, you can find the local archives of some tiny village in the Apennines and discover, you know, how many pairs of shoes they gave to Garibaldi's soldiers when when they went mm -hmm. through because. The poor soldiers, their, their shoes very, very soon uh, were, were destroyed uh, by right. the awful Right, right, parade. right. Yeah, and you discovered how difficult and arduous this, this journey was. But you got to stay in some beautiful places because Garibaldi would often have his soldiers stay in monasteries, which was counterintuitive. Because you know the, he was and he was working against the Pope. The Pope was on the side of the French and the Austrians at this point. 
so why did he put his his soldiers up in in monasteries? So try and imagine the situation. You you've got a a, a guy with uh, he has a few other very very serious military commanders with him, and he's got four thousand men. Uh, most of most of them are not soldiers; they're volunteers. If he rolls into a town with those men, all kinds of stuff can happen. Um, right. Most of the towns were quite small at the time, and all of them located on the top of hills. In fact, the one of, he he always went to hilltop towns because because they were easy to defend. So one of the wonderful things about this trip was was wandering from one hilltop town to to the next. So the. He had to put them somewhere to sleep, and the best place was to put them in monasteries and convents just outside of town where there was a water supply and there were beds. And and there was also, frankly, there was definitely a propaganda strategy of trying to get the local church uh, people to realize that these guys were not the vandals that they were constantly being depicted as, that mm. they were idealists. Obviously, some of them were pretty were a pretty rough lot and, and some of them were not. So it was, they, everything was done, you, you know, day by day, flying by the seat of your pants, uh, as people used right. to say. And um, it's quite extraordinary to read about just to think how much this, how much Garibaldi was having to think about the day after day. Obviously, feeding the men was, was particularly problematic. He, right, never want, he, he didn't want to steal any, anything from the peasants, but food had to be found. So since he was still officially the general of the Roman army, he would ask for loans from the local towns and promise to pay back hmm. after Italian unity had been achieved. And um, 11, 12 years later, many of those loans were paid back. Yeah, no, it's a, it, it's a, it's an extraordinary journey. And you, you, you describe some of the uh, beautiful sights you see, but you also talk about your blisters and how difficult it is just to do the walking. And I, I thought one thing that was very interesting was walking sticks. You know, a lot of our listeners might be planning walking vacations. You became a fan of those. Why are walking sticks so helpful if you're going to be doing a long walking trip like this? Yeah, well, I, I don't know what they're called, sticks, poles, um, bastoni, <laughs> the, Italian, the Italians call them. Let's say we, we were walking with about, about 15, 15 pounds, not 50, uh, a very lightweight, just, just a two changes of clothes and a pair of sandals in our, in our backpacks. And obviously, a lot of water. You ha- you have to carry, you know, a couple of liters of water each because because you need to be able to drink. So we were carrying that, and sometimes we were walking as many as as much as twenty, twenty two, twenty three miles a day in pretty in pretty rough rough country. So one of the things I was trying to do in this book is to say, let's stop thinking of, of history as you know, describing this event in a few minutes. And remember that these guys were really doing this. They were really right. walking. They had woolen clothes. Yeah. Uh, they no doubt had rashes. They had, they had sweat problems. They no doubt had funguses. They had bleeding feet and so on and so forth. So in a way, it, it was a way of saying, let, let's talk about history in a different way and, and enjoy the landscape that they enjoyed and also talk about about the gap between that landscape and now. 
There was one there was one anecdote that I found in a local archive in a small town in Tuscany. A farmer came to Garibaldi while he was in the town and knelt before him, complaining that the soldiers had um, had damaged the, the fence and the field that he rented from the church and asking for compensation. And Garibaldi said, you know, first thing, get off your knees and, yes, uh, we'll see what we can do about compensation. And the, the guy who wrote the Chronicle writes, while Garibaldi was doing this, he was unwrapping the rags that, that were round his blistered toes and putting oh. tallow on them, which is sort of animal fat, so that, mm. so that he could dress his feet for the, next, uh, for the next part of the expedition. So, so there we are, you know, seeing him with, with bleeding feet while he's trying right. to deal with the, the local complaints and so on. Yeah. Uh, I certainly sympathize. I sympathize with the, there were many deserters, of course, many people deserted. And uh, I sympathize with those people too, because some days we certainly felt like giving up, I can say. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, I mean, the, the book has drama, it has suspense. I, I thought it was just a delightful read. And it also brings to life today's Italy, where you, you walk past small memorials to people who were hit by lightning or who died in a car accident and, and big memorials put up by the fascists who had also claimed Garibaldi. I mean, there's just so many different layers to the book. Uh, Absolutely. It, it, Can I say, we've missed something out that's like hugely important in emotional okay. terms. Garibaldi was married to, to a, a Brazilian woman, Anita, who had, who, who had had three children by him and was pregnant with a fourth. And she came to Rome just before, just before the final defeat, even though she was six months pregnant. Uh, she wow. came without telling Garibaldi. She, he, he left her at home in Nice. He was delighted to see her, but it meant that she insisted on coming on this retreat. So throughout this retreat... Uh, Garibaldi was was beside his his wife who was six months pregnant and of course mm. in all kinds of, of difficulty as things began to get desperate because it's a story of uh, of, of desperation that goes really to, to a, a very extreme point and and no doubt this gives a huge poignancy to to the to the book to my book but most yes. of all to this story uh, and as you go along, town to town, one of the funny things is you can see that you're in the zone because you'll find these tiny little memorials in a in a side street saying, you know, and Anita Garibaldi stayed the night here and was given yeah. some new clothes, you know, and stuff like that. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and you were traveling with your partner Eleonora. I hope I'm. Uh, am I saying her name correctly? Yeah, Eleonora. Yeah. Uh, okay, and uh, and it's also about your relationship. So you, there's a parallel there. Uh, there's just so many different levels to the book. I, I I so enjoyed it. So thank you for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show and for giving me this delightful read. I hope all our listeners pick up the book as well. It's it's really terrific. Well, thanks, Pauline. Thanks so much for your enthusiasm. Thank you. Our next guest is Deborah Kamen, who wrote a very, very timely article 
for the New York Times. It's called Hold the Tequila. The sunrise is all some travelers need. First of all, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Deborah. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. And you start out the article by talking about why sobriety is such a big issue now. So let's let's talk about that first. You know, it's not so much that sobriety is such a big issue as much as drinking is such a big issue. Mm, and the right. sobriety is a response to it. I think a lot of us drank a lot more during the pandemic than perhaps ever before, mainly because we were home. And when you're home, you kind of shift into a vacation mode, even if you are still working from home. And a lot of people who now are about to take trips are really thinking about whether or not they want to take those new drinking habits with them or if they can use these trips as a way to kind of reconnect with a better relationship with alcohol they may have had pre-pandemic. Right. Well, you you talked to somebody who developed a problem with alcohol during the pandemic and she quit it. She, She got sober and then realized she wanted to take a vacation and couldn't imagine a vacation without alcohol. I bet that's pretty common. Yeah, you know, I spoke to a lot of people for this story. And one of the things about journalism, people who don't really see the sausage being made, you're never able to include all the interviews that you do in an article. Sure. And I um, I spoke to so many people who really were very open about their relationship with alcohol. I spoke to one man who had never flown without having a drink at the airport before. Huh. And he's a bit afraid of flying. And that was his major challenge to overcome to go on the trip. Wow. Wow. But a lot of people are taking this seriously, do want to travel again, want to do it without alcohol. What are some of the resources that are available to them? So there's a lot of resources and it's it's how extreme you want to go with your alcohol-free trip. There are actually a number of tourism agencies and travel groups that produce alcohol-free trips where everybody on the trip is either sober or has gone through some sort of recovery process and there's no alcohol whatsoever. There's also several resorts that specialize in wellness that are really more health and spa focused. But because of those reasons, they don't serve alcohol in the dining room. You're not going to find yourself having to decline a a glass of wine or a beer with friends around you. And then finally, there's tips that I lay out in the piece from the one woman you mentioned, who she's taking a trip with friends who are drinkers, but she chose a destination. In her case, it was Sedona, Arizona, where the trip will be more focused on hiking and being outdoors instead of going to clubs or bars at the beach. Sure. Well, that's been a huge trend in travel this year is people turning away from cities and going more towards nature vacations. Are those more suited to sober travel, do you think? I think they are. And it's something I didn't realize until I began reporting out this piece. But the reality is, if you're going to go hiking in the mountains, or you're going to go camping in the desert, being even slightly inebriated is very difficult in those situations and also even potentially dangerous. In in addition, you have to carry the alcohol with you as one of the sources that I spoke to pointed out very poignantly. And that's extra weight for a camping trip. So a lot of people have been traveling sober, not because they really wanted to, but because the cities with the bars haven't been accessible. That being said, you do in this article go into the fact that more and more hotel bars and even restaurant bars are trying to cater to people who want a cocktail, but want it to be a mocktail, right? Yes, exactly. And there's a number of new interesting mocktails that are being rolled out at very chic hotel bars. One of them is in Singapore. A lot of them are in Los Angeles and New York. And I think a lot of the reason for that is we've all spent the past 15 months really thinking about our health. 
And when mm. you think when you think about your mm. health, even if you didn't get COVID, even if you were just home worried about potentially being exposed to it, we all are more aware of the things we're doing now and the things we're putting into our body. And for some people, that means they want to drink less. Yeah, yeah. And it's also leading to new kinds of traditions. The other morning, I was at the dog run uh, near my home and across the street was a church and I suddenly heard a brass band playing. <laughs> it was seven in the morning That's and beautiful. all of these people were dressed in tutus and sequins and incredible costumes and they were all going up to the door of this church. It was clear there was a massive party going on inside. I thought it was a pride celebration, but no, it was a daybreak uh, celebration. Can, can you talk about that trend? I, it was one of the most joyous things I've seen recently. And it's seven in the morning. Crazy. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize they were using churches at some of the locations as well. That's quite unique and very fun. But Daybreaker is one of these sober morning raves that have become more and more popular over the past five or 10 years. There's other companies like Morning Gloryville that also produce these events. And what they are, are massive, joyful parties that you dance and you meet people just like you would at a nightclub, but they take place at the crack of dawn and they're absolutely drug and alcohol free. And what happened during the pandemic was obviously you couldn't gather with a thousand people to dance. So they started having these online events where people would log into their computer and dance at home. And as a result, a lot more people were able to be exposed to these events. And now that we can travel again, they're traveling to attend them. Uh, one of the the people that I spoke to who produces these events said their out-of-town guests have tripled since they've really huh. been able to open up again. And that points to a lot of people incorporating fun events like this with a trip. Wow. So what is the biggest piece of advice you would give to somebody who has never traveled sober before and is nervous about doing it? What's what's the the one thing that they need to do if there so, is a one thing? So I am not a sober traveler, but a lot of the people that I spoke to, there was a thread in all of the advice they gave and it was make a plan. Make sure that you don't find yourself on your trip in a situation where you didn't think ahead about how you're going to respond. So have an idea in your mind what you're going to do at the airport if you pass the airport bar and you really want to have that glass of wine. Have mm. an idea in your mind what you're going to do when you go to dinner, if you're going to look at the wine list and then avoid it, or if you're going to order something else. Make sure that you think about the scenarios in your head where maybe you might want to have had a drink in the past, but now you don't, and figure out how you're going to respond before you get on the road to make it easier to stick to those goals. Well, excellent advice and a wonderful article. Many thank congratulations. So and thank you for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. It was really a pleasure. Thank you, Pauline. And that's it for this week's show. But before I say goodbye for the week, I got a very interesting letter uh, from a listener to this podcast asking my advice. You know, when I was on radio for, good Lord, 20 years, I'm not sure how long it was. <laughs> the shtick was that we had people call in and ask about their travel. And we had to kind of shift that because we're no longer doing this live. We're not on radio. And so we've shifted this uh, to primarily guests, but I'm always pleased to get questions. And you can email them to me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. Now, this questioner had a very serious question. She was being, 
well, I hate to use the word railroaded, but really pushed by a tour operator to put down a deposit on a trip to two Scandinavian nations. And she was very nervous to do so for a couple of really logical reasons. Uh, First off, one of the nations wasn't even open to Americans yet. Secondly, the fine print of her contract stated that once she put her money down, if she had to change her travel plans, she would only be able to do that once under this contract. And the other thing that made her nervous was he wanted her to sign a, I don't know if the word is rider, but another contractual piece of paper saying that the tour operator did not have to guarantee any of the destinations on the tour, any of the activities of the tour, really anything. Bizarrely enough, the last part is the most normal. Because tour operators have such a complex product, and because their first responsibility is to keep their travelers safe, they always have these kinds of disclaimers in their contracts saying they can't guarantee you're going to go to X, Y, and Z destination. That's because if a storm hits or if an earthquake happens or if a border closes or if something happens and they can't get the group to that destination because they're trying to keep them safe, they don't want to be sued by someone on the tour saying, hey, you promised me to go here. So that's actually the most normal part of this. What worried me really was, A, that she was really being pushed to put down this money, even though the tour wasn't for a long, for, for a long time from now, but more so that the tour operator had what is right now a pretty draconian cancellation policy. At the start of the pandemic, a lot of tour companies totally revamped their cancellation policies because they desperately needed to get people to put money down on tours that might or might not happen. I mean, everything was up in the air, as we all know. And most tour companies have kept those very lenient cancellation policies uh, in place. In fact, a bunch of them, uh, G Adventures pops to mind, but there are others, have what they're calling a, a, I think it's called an eternal deposit or a universal deposit, whereby if you put down money and you can't travel at the date you're supposed to travel, you can change that date and you can change it again and you can change it again. They're not going to penalize you in any way because they understand the world's a very uncertain place right now. So my advice to this listener was that she maybe go to one of the marketplace sites uh, like Tour Radar or stridetravel.com. These are sites that show you in one one click pretty much all of the different tour options to the destination you want to go to. And that way you can easily compare prices you can compare itineraries, and it takes a second click. I, I, I'm hoping that they'll put cancellation policies on the first page. Right now, it's on the second page. Uh, but 
it's still pretty easy to see what the requirements and regulations surrounding your tour will be. The truth is the travel industry is still very hungry for your business. And so you don't have to go with a company that's making you feel uncomfortable. There are going to be other options, maybe better options, but at least options that are just as good. Uh, I wrote an article about this on Fromers.com. I also wrote about President Biden's new executive order, but I don't want to go into too much detail about this this now. I'll probably have a discussion of this next week. Uh, But as always, I I invite you there to to read it. Some really interesting stuff stuff up this week. And also, as always, I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. Watching K.